Welcome back to the 123 Show with me, Noreen Mayer, on this Friday afternoon. It really is my favourite time of the week because it's time for the Agenda Cafe. And I'm really happy to welcome back on the programme our wonderful co-host, Karen Ko. Karen, it's great to see you today. How are you great doing? I'm good. Great to see you, as always, Noreen, through the computer, through the Zoom, the magic of technology. Um, no, I'm doing well. I'm, I always like Friday afternoons for the same reason. Um, and today we're actually talking about a topic which is not so great, but uh, important to talk about and has been in the news a lot in the last year. And we're talking about anti-Asian racism in the West. So... Just over three weeks ago, we saw the headlines after eight people working in massage parlors in Atlanta, Georgia, shot by a lone white gunman. Six of them were Asian women. And since then, we've seen you know, a lot of multiple incidents of Asian people being verbally, physically abused and assaulted in, in cities all over the US, in the UK, in other places. And yes, we see stories, but these aren't just anecdotes. So. There is some, a little bit of data, actually. So researchers at California State University in San Bernardino found that hate crimes targeting Asians in 16 of the largest U.S. cities increased 149 percent between 2019 and 2020. And over the same period, they found that overall reports of hate crimes actually declined by 7 percent. Uh, and then in, if you go across to Europe, it's actually not so easy to get similar data because a lot of countries don't track race or ethnicity in their crime data. But we know that in London, according to data from the Metropolitan Police, there were 222 hate crimes against East Asians between June and September of last year. And that's roughly double from the same period a year earlier. So this is actually happening. It's not just hearsay or, or stories or rumors. And we've seen in response to that rallies against anti-Asian hate in Canada, in Germany, in France, the Netherlands, in New Zealand. So people are talking about this now. And alongside this, we have another topic which came out of the media coverage of that shooting in Atlanta, which is the fetishization of Asian women. So it's a lot to chew on for today's show, but we've got two great guests to help us do that, and we're delighted to be joined by Grace Ping. Grace is Assistant Professor of Gender Studies at the University of Hong Kong. Um, she's actually a queer and feminist studies scholar. She specializes in Japan and transnational fem feminism. So Grace, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. And we also have a lovely familiar face and voice to our RTHK listeners, Crystal Kwok. So Crystal, of course, if you've been a long time RTHK listener, know, will know you used to host Kwok Talk. Uh, we used to host the Sex Crystals together. But Crystal's now a filmmaker and a PhD student in performer studies in Hawaii. And she's currently working on a documentary film called Blurring the Color Line, Chinese in the Segregated South. And, and that film addresses the race relations between the Chinese and the black communities in the American South during segregation. So, Crystal, welcome to the Agenda Cafe. It's great to have you back on RTHK. Oh, hi. So nice to see you all. Hi, Hong Kong. Great hi, to see you all. Thank you. So, so let's sort of start by giving it a little bit of context. You know, like the, the incidents we've seen in the last year or so and the numbers are shocking and startling, but we know that anti-Asian racism is not new. So can you give us a bit of a historical perspective of how it's played out over the years? Maybe Crystal, you can go first. 
Okay. Well, you know, I, I was born in San Francisco, so I guess I'm technically Asian American, even though I hate that term because it's very problematic. It lumps everything together, right? Um, I feel like I'm transnational because I grew up half in, in, in Hong Kong. But um, to speak to the history, uh, did you say of Asian Americans? Of, of racism so, against Asians in, in the U.S.? Well, I'd like it bring, to bring it specifically to my research because it's something I'm more knowledgeable about. But, um, you know, when slavery happened and all of us in history classes know about slavery on a very superficial level, but in a very small nutshell uh, version is that after slavery ended, you know, they had this plantation kind of um, living where the African-Americans were doing hard labor, right? And then the white community had these commissaries and they had these shops to kind of cater to their basic needs and they kind of came out of it and so this is the south i'm talking about this is specifically the south um, most of us know american asian american history from the railroads and all the other kind of labor history but um, i'm talking about the south where it was segregated so this racial history was a very ever since the beginning right african americans were always oppressed and so when the um when the black people basically were not slaves anymore they were still enslaved in a sense because they were oppressed they were deprived of every everything right unequal schools unequal you know it, it's it, you can't even over emphasize the disparity you know different uh drinking fountains was the most obvious right um people didn't know that in a department store Black people were not allowed to enter from the front door. They had to go through the back and they weren't even allowed to try on clothes. They couldn't even use the restroom. So if they had to go to the toilet, they would either have to like do it before they go to the store or hold it till they come back. So they were deprived of every basic fundamental rights, which was outrageous. And I thought a lot of times we don't learn about these histories, these details. So where the Chinese come in, and I'm talking about the racism that I know, is when the Chinese came in to take over, kind of inserting themselves in, in the middle. You know, this is where the model minority myth comes out, and we hear about that a lot recently. Then all of a sudden, um, they become this wedge between the black and whites, right? There's this hierarchy built on a racial system based on a color line. And then the Asians kind of fit in the middle and and people don't know what to do with them. And so they're kind of striving to survive and get ahead. And so they end up heading towards the white side. And so then there becomes this wedge between the African-Americans and the Chinese. And then this whole Afro-Asian tension you see today speaks to that past. And Grace, please tell me what I'm missing out because you're not a historian. Yeah, um, I uh, I just want to say that, uh, Crystal, like I find your work so fascinating and I feel like it does so much to give like a more sort of um, or to sort of like bring light to these more individual stories that complicate everything that we know about race in the U.S. So I just wanted to put that out there. But um, yeah, I, I think like when I consider the anti Asian racism in the US right now, what I really want people to do is not think about it as specifically anti-China. Um, so not to think about it. Uh, so that is a factor. Um, but I, I think like if we sort of paint it in, uh, in this framework of contemporary geopolitics, it erases this much longer history of discrimination against Asians. So uh, when people want to talk about what this is, I'm probably not going to be able to cover all the historical bases properly either. Um, but 
but they usually go back to the 19th century and they look at like the late 1800s and all the animosity that was brewing at that time against Chinese male laborers who were coming into the country um, as cheap labor to do work on the railroads and in, uh, in, in many places in the U.S. And so uh, people often mention the um, Chinese exclu uh, Exclusion Act which made it impossible for, for Chinese to come into the country. Um, but even before that, actually, so before this very famous act, there was specifically um, an act that made it impossible for Chinese women to come in. So there was also this highly gendered factor. So if we look beyond the experience of Chinese Americans, uh, there was the, um, the, the Japanese internment camps of World War II. Uh, so that's something very big that I think no one should forget um, when we're talking about anti-Asian sort of sentiment in the U.S. Uh, there are all sorts of um, sort of moments of violence throughout the 20th century, actually, that show that this sort of animosity, this um, this hatred is, is not something that's new. Uh, another very famous incident is the um, killing of Vincent Chin in the 1980s. So uh, this was a time when Japanese automobiles were doing very well in the U.S. And so there was all this sort of anti-Japanese sentiment. And Vincent Chin, who was uh, Chinese-American, was mistaken for a Japanese-American and he was he was murdered. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's a that's a very broad picture that I hope people keep in mind in terms of uh, seeing uh, sort of the issues between U.S. and China right now as maybe a trigger for what's happening, but not reading it completely in terms of um, something so specific. Yeah, yeah just I mean, to add to that, I think Grace was mentioning the the Page Act of nine of eighteen seventy five that actually predates the Chinese Exclusion Act, and I think you wrote a really great article on Medium, and I think it made a link to uh, Nancy Yun, who's a scholar in this area. And I was shocked to learn that there was actually a Page Act of eighteen seventy five that predates, as you said, the Chinese Exclusion Act, and it specifically already targeted East Asian women, and it was applied to Chinese women because they thought of Chinese women as prostitutes and I think that again is reinforced uh, once again by you know perhaps if you look at the military and the invasion of Asian countries afterwards you know Americans went to war with a lot of Asian countries and um, women uh, were unfortunately um, perceived as prostitutes or provided sex work and again that's you know illustrated by the the cheap and accessible nature of their bodies being available, which I think we'll, we'll, we'll get more to that, but I just wanted to put that into context um, uh, of that. Yes, uh, Karen, go on. Uh, I was going to say it's interesting as you mentioned Vincent Chen being mistaken for Japanese um, and when you do look at what happened recently, a lot of people do ascribe the recent hate to rhetoric from President Trump, you know, calling uh, COVID, the China virus, the Kung flu, the Chinese virus, thereby painting anyone who looks remotely Asian um, into sort of a, a category. I mean, do you, how much damage do you think was done by him using those labels? I think there was huge damage done. So uh, I'm also not trying to trivialize the fact that Trump talked this way about Chinese um, or about China. But I think what we miss if we don't look at all this history is um, uh, we miss like a, a sort of understanding of like deeper structural problems, right? So uh, people, so this, this all this racism um, or all this racist misogyny or xenophobic misogyny was able to take shape in this way, like in very um, 
like brutal acts of violence because of all of these sort of underlying um, problems, right? Yeah, I, I just wanted to add to that, you know, um, that it, it's easy to see the Asians and the and the black communities pitting against each other, all the kind of minority groups. But actually, the root of, of all these issues, as Grace was saying, is the structural problem of of the foundation of white supremacy. Now, maybe in Hong Kong, we don't think about that term and what that means. But and I never really felt it when I was living in Hong Kong as well. But it, it's just um, if you peel open all the obvious kind of racisms that we see, the basis of it is really the structure based on a concept that white reigns supreme, right? So anything outside of it, so that the Page Act that Noreen, you were talking about, and the 1882 um, Chinese Exclusion Act were all made to push them out because Chinese were seen as a threat to that central white power, right? And so they would enact things like miscegenation laws, which means you're not allowed to you can't even date, right? You know, you would get lynched. You would, you would, people would kill you for dating a white person if you were black. Now, with if Chinese dated a white person, they often had to go. They may not have been lynched for it, even though they were lynched for other things. Is they might have to go to a different state to get married. So it was technically illegal. So they're using sex. You can't take away. You can't split apart race and sex, racism and sexism, basically, right? It's so intertwined by trying to control and keep that white race as they claim to be the superior race. And it's just um, to think about what the U.S. is structured on is why there's so much going on right now. There are all these eruptions coming out because everyone's like realizing that it is rotten at the core. Yeah, and, and the whole history in everything, whether it's art, music, um, you know, politics, it's when you put it, hold it to a mirror, you now see all these um, injustices and inequalities. Um, Crystal, I want to go back to something you said earlier. You mentioned Asians being the model minority. You know, we hear this term, which which basically means okay, Asians are hardworking, they're high achieving, they're peaceful. But what are the some of the pros and cons of that kind of profile? Well, it's definitely negative now that we try to unpack and understand what it. Uh, implies, but I think there's something deeper to it. I think I've, re I've read a lot about um, model minority and people are trying to explain it as being, that it's, it's easy to say that basically you work hard, you keep quiet and you won't be disruptive and they, you can sweep them on the good side of the color line, right? So that you have a higher chance of succeeding. And, and so, so by being quiet, you can assimilate and, and disappear within kind of like this blurry space. But at the same time, by doing that, people are implying that we're complicit to anti-black racism. So, you, it, so you're accepting the, the white supremacy by keeping quiet and by just fitting in. Yeah, but by doing that, we have to like, step on somebody else in order to get a little higher on the color line. And that's part of the reason why sort of racism against Asians are so underreported, because, you know, it plays into the whole stereotypes of Asians overseas being the sort of submissive types, you know, by, by complaining, by talking about um, things that they're being subjected to, um, you know, shows that they are perhaps weak or that they, they are... Carry with us. 
from coming over, right? Asians tend to be, okay, why are they quiet? In history, Chinese history, who's the historian here um, to talk about why Chinese women were meant to be quiet and that Confucian value of being obedient and, you know, sub not submissive, but quiet and listening to that patriarchy. It's all part of it. It's not just an American thing. Yeah. Um, I, w I want to say, what I mean, you live in America right now. What sorts of discrimination do you sort of see on the ground against Asians? You know, Hawaii is a funny place. Most people don't realize it. It's not like the rest of America. We Asians dominate here. I don't feel unwelcome. I'm like part of the majority here. Whereas if you're in a place like mid-america ohio or something you know or even in the bigger cities now you you feel the tension my grand my, my father my parents everybody lives in san francisco and my sister my sister has been telling him not to leave the house if he doesn't really need to there is such wow. a tension in major cities that people are actually very afraid that they could be a potential you know, a victim to something it is that real right now yeah. but we don't feel it in in, in hawaii grace yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I'm in Hong Kong right now, so I haven't been directly experiencing anything, but um, I've been reading, I mean, I myself, I, I put on the internet a class lecture that I gave uh, on this topic, but I also wrote it and I decided to make it public and at least share it with a few friends and colleagues because I saw that there were so many Asian American women specifically who were putting out these really personal kind of heartrending stories of what they were going through. So on the one hand, I think uh, when we look at what's happening now, especially if the, the fact that most of this violence is happening against Asian American women uh, or against Asian women in the U.S., uh, I think we need to think about it in uh, through an intersectional lens in terms of uh, gender and race, uh, but also class. So, for example, if we talk about the Atlanta shootings, uh, to understand that these women were shot, they were killed specifically because they were vulnerable in certain ways. So they were working class, um, they were immigrants or migrant workers, uh, they might not have been fluent uh, in English, um, all of these things. Uh, they were considered to be sex workers, so it's not clear whether or not they are they were sex workers, um, but, but this sort of stereotype, at least, also made it more likely for them to be the target of violence. So um, I want to say that, but at the same time, uh, I think it's, uh, I've learned a lot <laughs> from reading accounts, from all sorts of accounts of what Asian American women are going through right now. And so uh, basically, even if um, you're a woman, an Asian woman in the US right now, who's extremely privileged, like middle class, upper class, uh, a lot of these women are still afraid to just go out onto the streets. Mm -hmm. Right. So even in broad daylight. And I think what's important is that these are stories not just about physical violence, but about um, what we think of as microaggressions, like these sort of things in everyday life that, uh, you know, don't seem linked at all to physical violence, anything that really matters. But it's um, stories of being afraid, but also stories of just uh, being sexualized. Um, in racialized ways uh, for for decades, basically, and um, these these sort 
of small things that a lot of women have felt that they shouldn't talk about um, because they should just feel grateful for whatever they have or uh, they should feel that their problems are, are minor in some way. And all of this is kind of coming out now. Yeah, well, we'll return to this really interesting discussion after the 2.30 news. For our listeners and our viewers on Facebook, uh, do bear with us and stay stay with us on Facebook and we'll return to this chatter with Grace Ting and Crystal Kwok and Karen Ko. This Listening to the Agenda Cafe this Friday afternoon with me, Karen Ko and Noreen Nia. And we are talking about uh, a couple of things, anti-Asian racism in the West and also about how that is tied in with fetishization of Asian women. And we're joined by two guests. We have with us Crystal Kwok, who is filmmaker and PhD student in performance studies, and Grace Ting, who is assistant, assistant professor of gender studies at the University of Hong Kong. So Grace, I just want to pick up on something that you said earlier, talking about microaggressions, because you know, some people don't really understand what these are. And it just brought to mind, you know, a, a small story of my own, which seems to repeat itself. Um, when I was dating my now husband, he lived in London. And when I used to travel to London from Asia as a 20-something-year-old single woman, the immigration officer would always ask, what is the purpose of your visit? And I never, ever said, I'm here to visit my boyfriend because the assumption is, oh, if you're a young, single Asian woman coming to a Western country to visit your boyfriend, you're probably going to overstay your visa because you must want to come to our country. You're there for the passport or something. Exactly. (laughs) But this is what, you know, it's not something that maybe anyone would think of, but this is the kind of thing that as, as young Asian women, you do think of because you realize that this is the perception that people have of you, that you're, you're trying to, you know, be, you know, catch a Western man. So therefore, you're coming to this country. Uh, not that you, you know, wouldn't have your own great career and your own great opportunities, you know, in your own country. Um, and it continues to this day. I mean, I, I just don't think that that kind of perception has changed very much. H- how do you how do you affect that kind of change? Is it a, is it a generational thing? So how do you make up happening? Is that yeah, what yeah. How do you change attitudes so that don't make sense just because they see your face and, and they, they look at you and they make these assumptions about who you're moving from? Yeah, um, I think there just there needs to be greater awareness. There needs to be education about racism, about misogyny. Uh, so if we talk about like the specific history of that moment, aggression that the actually I'm afraid we're having some network connections at the moment. We'll try our best to uh, connect as soon as possible uh, to Grace. And I think we've got the connection back. Sorry, go on, Grace. It's kind of cut out a little bit. I, sorry. No, no, not at all. Um, I, I don't know how much I missed, but uh, I was um, about, I feel like we understand this longer I'm very sorry about this, but uh, we are having uh, troubles connecting this afternoon. It, it's it's a poor connection this afternoon from our Admiralty studio. Right, Grace, third time is a charm. Sorry, go on. Perhaps. 
I'm afraid we're going to have to try and get the show on the road. We're talking about anti-Asian sentiment in the West on the back of the hate crime that was committed in Atlanta. And let's also address the fact that, you know, the media has a big part to play in this and the fact that it wasn't really being called a hate crime. I think that the perpetrator was being quoted as saying he needed to eliminate his temptation Temptations and these victims weren't even sort of given the, the proper address that they deserve uh, in, in light of the crime. They were sort of simply referred to as uh, temptations. Uh, that's also a, a big issue. I think we've uh, managed to get uh, Grace and Crystal back on the line. Uh, right, Grace, perhaps fourth time is the charm. Or maybe not. We'll just have to uh, perhaps uh, find a way to, to connect via WhatsApp. Uh, we'll return to this uh, edition of the Agenda Cafe after this. Dancing in the kitchen, you singing my favorite song. Swinging on the front porch, just laughing at the dogs. I swear you love me more when you're whispering at night. All those little moments are every reason why I'm homesick. This feeling that I'm feeling, though we don't quit. It's like half of me is missing, heaven knows it. I've never been before Yeah, they're screaming my name This is what we dreamed about But out here singing about you, baby All I'm thinking about is how I'm homesick This feeling that I'm feeling No, we don't quit It's like half of me is missing Heaven knows That all I want
Miley Cyrus on RTHK Radio 3 and the song is Nothing Breaks Like a Heart. Right, uh, let's try and bring back the Agenda Cafe uh, this afternoon. Um, I think we might be lucky and we've managed to get um, um, apologize for the connection, we've managed to get uh, Grace Ting and Crystal back. Um, right, I don't even know where, where, we, where we were. I'm so frazzled from trying to get the connection back. Um, perhaps, um, uh, Karen, do you want to re-ask your question because I kind of took it to a different direction about sort of the way that you know this is all portrayed in the media but let's address you, your, sure. your question so, first. So Grace was talking about um, you know I was talking about microaggressions and then she was talking about some of how this goes back in history so maybe Grace you want to pick up a bit on that point? Yeah um, as long as no one is tired of hearing me say this because I feel like I've gone through this multiple times um, but if everyone is okay with this so I think I was just talking about how microaggressions are these sort of little things that happen in everyday life that we think are are harmless, right? But um, for example, if we think about this microaggression that Karen experienced, this actually goes back to a much deeper history of U.S. imperialism in Asia. So uh, if we think about um, the Korean War, um, the Vietnam War, if we think about the presence of U.S. military bases all over Asia in the 20th century, um, and there are still bases in, in Asia. Asia right now, right? Uh, but the fact that there were all these um, U.S. military uh, who were at these bases and then around them, um, there formed these sort of camp towns uh, where, where basically uh, they were encouraged to, um, you know, uh, to sort of entertain themselves by sleeping with Asian women, by sleeping with local women uh, who were there because um, in, in the surrounding areas like these became, they became like economically dependent upon the U.S. military bases. Right. So uh, what what happened then after that was that um, due to this sort of culture in Asia, uh, so these men would come back to the U.S. and bring like all of their sort of preconceptions about Asian women. Um, this is, is something that also like, you know, has appeared in all sorts of like American popular culture. And so and this is then compounded with this longer history of Orientalism in which uh, Asian women um, are and specifically like East Asian and Southeast Asian women are seen as being like very mysterious and like sexualized and um, exotic, Indian, but also um, like sexually available and all of this, right? Mm. And we get that in the pop popular culture with with things like Miss Saigon, you know, or Madame Butterfly that just kind of perpetuates mm. the 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 stereotype. I mean. Um, Crystal, I'm curious, like in the case of the Atlanta shooting, when, when you saw how it was portrayed uh, in the media, that it wasn't portrayed as a racial hate crime, it was portrayed, um, the perpetrator had a sex, sex addiction. What did you think of that? Oh, gosh, I was angry. I mean, actually, and, and everybody was angry. It was like, how, how can you not see this as a, as a, as a racial violence? And in fact, I had covered this on my radio show here in Hawaii, and I had some um, Asian students who came on and we voiced our opinions on it. And uh, everybody was the same on the same page of like how ridiculous and how, again, revealing that that white power in trying to protect um, the, the perpetrator as saying that it was more of a mental health issue. Um, and I wanted to share that after my show, I got a call in the studio by this um, white guy who basically said, 
you know, you didn't do your research very well, did you? You didn't see, didn't you read the paper? It was a sex addiction. It had nothing to do with race. So you have people like that. And it's a very divided country. You have people who, you, there's no talking sense to them because there's, all, there's they're the Trump people. These are the people who believe in white supremacy, who don't see a space for, they don't recognize this racial issue or they don't want to admit it. And so um, it, it's, uh, it's a very troubling situation because half of the country don't see it as a problem. The media also yeah. has a big part to play. I mean, the portrayal and, and the language that they use as well, but also in pop culture. If we look at the way that uh, women Asian characters are often being portrayed, I mean, what sorts of roles do they usually have? Perhaps they play uh, a prostitute, a, a maid, a nanny. Um, and also, I, I was, I was, <laughs> don't ask me why I was watching The Sopranos two nights ago, but I was shocked to see some of the dialogue uh, that they were used because there was an Asian woman character um, and they were also sort of like um, drooling all over her and then used, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, um, I wonder what she's like, Kung Pao Kuchi. And I was shocked to see that sort of language being used. I suppose 20 years ago, maybe it was more accepted. But how are we breaking down these sort of stereotypes? How are we breaking down the fetishization? Um, and how are we sort of uh, removing uh, ourselves from that sort of Asian women are exotic and shouldn't be hypersexualized? Um, and it brings back to experiences. I'm sure perhaps some of our listeners listening, perhaps you three have been through something like this. I mean, when I was a university student in the UK, um, I, I had comments like Ting Tong being yelled at me or like me love you long time. Um, and, you know, um, just really horrible comments that I had to endure as an Asian woman overseas. How can we move away? Should we be sort of standing up for ourselves? Do we need allies? Who can be our allies? Who can show the solidarity that Asian women and Asian people around the world uh, deserve. Uh, Grace? Um, I wonder if I can uh, touch upon this problem, this very big question, by uh, going back to what Crystal was saying a bit earlier. So about sort of like tensions or perceived tensions between uh, Asian and Black communities in the U.S. But, um, you know, I, I feel like our allies, uh, I, I think first that Asian American women need to be uh, need to avoid trivializing. Uh, trivializing. We need to avoid trivializing our own um, sort of problems. So I, I think this is especially easy to do because you know if we are considered sexually desirable in some way, you know this seems like something to some extent that we we need to feel grateful for. <laughs> and it sounds a little bit offensive to put it that way. Um, but when I sort of think about reasons why, uh, you know, I've, I was treated in a certain way, like when I was living in the US or in Europe, um, and why I didn't feel like this was something that was worth talking about, um, I think it's because, you know, uh, it did feel like this was sort of a trivial problem compared to what uh, some other racial or ethnic minorities were facing. Um, but I think like now, so this question of who, like who are our allies, uh, this is really important because right now there's a lot of momentum in terms of Asian American activism in the US. I think what we need to consider first is um, how during this activism, we are standing with other people of color, right? So thinking about um, the ways, for example, that black women are fetishized in the US or Latinx women, um, and so making sure that our stories are heard in some way, but in solidarity with these other stories. 
And um, something that I was thinking about before coming on this show was, you know, how is this relevant to, uh, to listeners in Hong Kong? Right? I think that Hong Kong is going through so much right now. And so I don't really want to jump to the conclusion that, you know, suddenly Hong Kongers should just care about what's happening to, uh, to Asians overseas. Um, it might seem like a very distant problem. But I think if we, if we um, take these sort of, sorry? It's not, it's not different. It's all connected. So what you're saying is very relevant. Right. It's, it's not different at all, right? So um, I think like in, in one very basic way, if we think about these sort of structural problems of racism and misogyny and uh, histories of, of imperialism, I hope that some Hong Kongers will see what's happening in the U.S. and um, try to think about Hong Kong in a different lens as well. So if we're going to talk about white supremacy, about racial hier hierarchies, uh, that exists in Hong Kong as well. How does it play out here? Um, how are uh, ethnic minority women, for example, fetishized or blamed in certain ways for, um, for being supposedly sexually available? Uh, so how is what's happening there uh, kind of mirrored in different ways or refracted um, in the situation of Hong Kong? Yeah, I think that's a great point because people here may not ever acknowledge that there's racism here, but but we all know there is, you know, um, Chinese can be very racist against other minorities. Yeah, yes, sure, Crystal. Asian in Hong Kong, have you not had to deal with the colonialism as in a white expatriate asking you or assuming your position? Didn't you get ever get that question like, oh, why is your English why so good? Why is your English so good? Oh, of I course. know. Oh, yes. And then they hear your English and then they look at you and they think, how can how can you speak this kind of English? And they're very yeah. surprised. And it's or or you look at the way I mean, Crystal and I, you know, we're both married to white men. The way they're treated so differently by everybody, by the police, by you know, a, a maitre d in a restaurant. You know, they can get away with with pretty much anything. Um, but you know, definitely. Colorism plays into even Asian groups ourselves, right? I'm darker than you, Noreen. I mean, um, Karen. So, like, when I used to go on trips to Southeast Asia or, you know, for a little trip to Thailand or Phuket or whatever, um, they would see me as the dirty weekend getaway. They wouldn't see me as the partner, right? They would immediately sexualize me because right. I'm a Southeast Asian. Yeah, so, so, yeah, so you, you go to... How do you think the they see me? I'm half Chinese, half Pakistani. I'm like darker than you, Crystal. You know, there's like a hierarchy. Thanks, guys. It's true. It's like security guards see you cross the hotel lobby and they're like, oh, where are you going? It's like to my room. You know, I'm a guest here. I'm not an overnight visitor. But yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a great point. Grace, I know that you um, have an appointment and you have to leave, but I do want to say thank you so much for contributing to the discussion today. It's really been great to hear um, your your point of view and also um, we definitely will spread the word about the work that you're doing as well. Thank you for being on the show. Thank, thank you, you, Grace. Thank you so much for having me. And, um, you know, I, I hope I said something that was, that was relevant and, and useful for people to think about. So... Uh, thank you so much. I'll be going now. Okay. Thank you, Grace. Bye. Bye. That was Grace Ting. She's Assistant Professor of Gender Studies at the University of Hong Kong. Um, Crystal, I wanted to ask you, because partly because you're doing this documentary and you talked about the hierarchy of race in, in the U.S. And I think one of the most disturbing things 
that I saw recently was the woman in New York City, the Filipino woman who was okay. savagely beaten by a black man. And that, you know, that's just really, that's really disturbing. I mean, there is no feeling that there's solidarity against racism across the different communities. It's very troubling, but again, this is media too, right? Media is honing into one um, one specific incident, right? Where it helps to, again, um, divert the attention away from the white problem. I'm gonna go back to that because it's very revealing. And then it's like, look at them playing against each other. Look at how the black people are treating Asians. And so that it creates even more animosity. And it is, I mean, it's very, um, that was a very disturbing clip. And I think that this, the silence people who the two men in that building who didn't do anything about it are just as guilty right there's violence in silence right you don't you, you're not participating but you are and so there's a lot of that form of complicity in in anti-racism and um you know taking this to the bigger picture of of why different groups are attacking each other is is just that this country has split up it has made people feel like they're not accepted here and then they need to step on the other person there to make themselves go a little bit better in a better position and then it's just like uh, it, it's just become such an ugly situation like we don't and, and then the solidarity that you're mentioning is sometimes there is true solidarity but I feel like there's a lot of superficial solidarity there's like okay I'm an ally are you an ally yes I have you know you we've gone beyond the oh I have one black friend thing people understand that's not solidarity but then there's so much we don't understand as Asians about African-American history and their burdens I wanted to mention Grace isn't here but I read her article and it's an amazing article and she asked this question how injured do you have to be in order to have that platform to to raise your anger right. yeah and that's it's a not a, it's not a competition exactly but it's turned into one because we're pitting each other against each other and allyship is sort of like a two-way street as well you know and and i feel like sometimes and this is a great opportunity for asians also to look at the racism that exists within our community and you know we often say you know asians can be racist too and and you know it's also a great opportunity for asians to address that are, are we showing allyship to black people when it was, you know, Black Lives Matter? Or was it a case that people were, you know, the bystanders put their head down, I'm not going to comment, I'm not going to say anything, and this will go away because I'm not really part of that. Um, ha have you seen some of that, Crystal? Sorry, what was the question? That last part? Oh, ha have you seen some of that um, in, in America? Have, have you seen sort of, you know, Asian people sort of saying, you know, when it was Black Lives Matter, was it other races that they kept their head down and, and they, they didn't really want to be a part of that co uh, conversation or that dialogue? Sure. I mean, a lot of mostly because Chinese, again, being Chinese or, or Asians in general, not to generalize, but tend to be more quiet and don't like to publicize any issues. Right. Yes. So it's, it's a shameful thing to express any kind of issues that are troubling. And, and so when Black Lives Matter erupted last March with uh, Floyd, and the case is going on now, so there's a lot of news on it, right? Every day is we're bombarded by by the case trial. series. Yeah. yeah, the trial of, of this uh, white officer who um, pressed his, um, his knee, his on, knee on, yeah. on his neck for nine minutes. So um, there, 
I participated in the Black Lives Matter movement when it was huge in Hawaii even then. So it was like it was a huge uh, uh, national movement and outrage and everything started shifting. The narrative shifted to we need to address anti-blackness. So everything we did as any whatever position you are in the States was to address and to reckon with how we might have been complicit to keeping the black people down. And all of a sudden recently, because of the anti-Asian violence, it's 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 complicated, <laughs> the yeah. racial divide. It used to be always a black and white matter. And now it's like, okay, so now people are really genuinely violently attacking Asians. So what does that mean? And how are we going to address this? And do we ignore that in order to be uh, supporting this side? You see, it's, yeah. it's very complicated. And, and do you feel like the, the anti- Asian racism movement has the same impact, the same strength, the same intensity as the Black Lives Matter. I don't feel like it does. I feel like we, we have to scream a lot louder to get heard. Well, but because we're still always seen as perpetual foreigners. Yeah. By the color of our skin, we will not see African-American history has, they, they can source it to slavery. And they know that they have that 400 years of burden to carry with them. And then Chinese will be like, well, okay, well, they were immigrants. They came over. Yeah, they had a hard time. They were laborers. They came over, but they worked hard and they got their way up and they're successful now. So what? What are you complaining about? So people have these narratives going on, too. Yeah, that's such a great point very, about the perpetual foreigner. And, and that goes back to identity, which is particularly why it's so hurtful for many overseas Asians, because they never feel like an insider. They're always being seen as an outsider. Exactly. And that when something well, happens, yeah. I mean, how does that feel for you, um, Crystal and Karen? I mean, you both, you know, live in America from time to time. Do you always feel like an outsider? Yeah. What about I your mean, children? I, I grew up in Australia. To, you know, I was first generation. I was born there, as were all my siblings. And, uh, you know, routinely, as this was in the you know, 70s, 80s, so many times I was, you know, racially slurred, usually being mistaken for Japanese because of the war because of Japanese internment camps in Singapore and there were Australians who had been there or their, their parents had been there. Um, and it's hard to, you know, sort of feel like you can really fit in when the first assumption is that you're from somewhere else and you don't belong here. And when, and people keep, they do, they say that, like, go back to your own country, go back to and where you're you like, came this from. This is my country. This like, is where I'm this from. This is where I came from. Yeah. And, but, but it's something that, you know, unfortunately, when you grow up in a place like that, at a time like that, you, you almost assume it's going to happen. It's, it's, it's like a, it's something that you absorb into your own being that as I approach this situation, whatever it is, I do need to make a little bit of an assumption that these people are going to think I'm from somewhere else. And you, it, unfortunately, you just get used to it. You know, it's just something that you, you end up living with, right? Yeah. And it's not a good thing at all. But, but still, at the same time, when I look at Australia now and I look, for example, at, at the news media, I see no diversity yet. It's all full of white anchors anchoring the news and with the exception of two TV stations and there, there isn't good representation um, and the Aboriginal people still struggle you know it's it's like why is, does this move so glacially and then of course on the on the uh, gender front 
I mean, in the last month, Australia has shown itself to be living in the dark ages at all levels. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing that it's taking this long to expose all this. And it gives rise to overseas nationalism as well, because when you have to cling on to some sort of identity, you cling on to the Chinese-ness, you become maybe perhaps more pro-China, you're root for China and the Olympics and, and, and all those things, because you don't feel like you fit in into the country that your parents and your family live in and you're born to, you cling on to the Japanese-ness um, and it creates a greater divide. And that's the biggest identity crisis for Asian Americans because it's like by assimilating, you're willing to sacrifice your culture in order to fit in. And then, you know, Chinese in Hong Kong, when I first moved there, people were like, oh, guay mui, guay mui. You know, exactly. they think that you're going to be like, you're just this banana. And where does that come from? Like, why is everything kind of centered around whiteness again? I'm just going to end up with that. It's like, we have to question why are all of our standards centered around whiteness? And I'm afraid why? we're out of time this afternoon. Uh, Crystal, thank you so much for, for joining us. Karen, it's such a pleasure to, to see you again, Crystal and Karen. And earlier we were speaking to Grace Ting. It's definitely a topic we want to revisit another time. A quick look at the weather.